The text for our sermon this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read verses 18 to 22. 2 Peter 2, 18 to 22. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end of them is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. At this point, let's ask the children to come forward. Well, for the last two Sundays, we have learned that there are fake ministers, people who talk about God but don't teach the things that the Bible says. And they talk about God because it gets them things that they want. Well, in the verses today, we learn that when a person gets tricked by a fake preacher, there's really only two reasons why. The first reason that a person can be tricked by a false preacher preacher is because, or a false teacher, is because this teacher talks about the Christian life in a way that makes sin okay. I hope you understand me because this is very, very important. God saves his children because of what Jesus did for them. So when we obey God's word, we're not trying to make God love us. We're saying thank you because he already does. You don't obey your mom and dad so that you can become their son or daughter. You obey them because you already are their son or their daughter. You know, your parents don't, when you disobey them, they don't say to you, you didn't make your bed, you're no longer my son. Now, you may be in trouble. Your parents will discipline you. You get scolded. You get warned about what will happen next time. You might get spanked. You might get grounded. That doesn't mean you're not part of the family, that they discipline you because you are part of the family. And in the same way, when we disobey God, he will discipline us. But just because he doesn't say, you're not my child anymore, that doesn't mean that it's okay to disobey God. Now, if I told some kid walking down the sidewalk, hey, come into my house and do the dishes, he wouldn't obey me. And you know why? Because he's not my son. He isn't part of my family. And if he doesn't do it, that's not going to get him thrown out of my family. He won't do it because he was never part of it to begin with. And that's the second reason why a person can be tricked by a fake preacher. The fake preacher and the person who gets tricked were never children of God to begin with. If you eat your lunch in the pasture, does that mean you're a cow? If you sleep in the garage, does that mean you're a car? If you swim in the river, does that mean you're a fish? No. If that boy I told to do the dishes came in and actually did them, would that make him my son? No. Well, Peter gives us a couple of examples just like that. He says that a dog will eat what it threw up. That's gross, right? Yeah, but that's not what Peter means. He doesn't mean that it's bad for a dog to do that. That may be gross to us, but that's just what dogs do. And Peter is telling us that if you see a dog eat what it threw up, it's doing that because it's not a fish, it's not a tiger, it's not a dove, 
It's not a squirrel, it's a dog, and it act, how it acts shows you that it is a dog. And then Peter says, if you cleaned a pig, it would get right back in the mud. And again, Peter doesn't mean that that's bad for a pig to do that. Wallowing in mud is just what pigs do. That's normal for them. Wallowing the mud shows you that it's a pig. If you washed the pig with soap and shampoo and sprayed perfume on it and put some nice clothes on it, the pig would still turn around and get right back in the mud. You see, when you cleaned the pig up, you didn't change it from being a pig. All the soap and water in the world won't make a pig not be a pig. So when Peter is telling us that when a person lives in sin, it's because they have never been changed. They are not a child of God. A true child of God doesn't try to see if God still loves him if he sins. A real Christian would never try to find out, I wonder if I can get God to kick me out of his family. In the Bible, God calls his people sheep. The person who uses God's name to continue to live like a pig was never one of God's sheep. He's always still just been a pig. And that's our lesson for this morning. I hope you listen to the rest of the sermon because we're going to talk some more about this. Now, we're going to pray and then you can return to your seats, okay? O oh, Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't think it takes a lot of introduction to get us up to speed this morning. We're at the end of 2 Peter 2, a chapter that warns in very stern language about the doom, danger, depravity, and deceptions of false teacher. And that's probably the first time in my preaching career I've ever used alliteration. Our outline is in the bulletin, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, we have the three points, the smooth talkers, secondly, abuse, of Christian liberty, and thirdly, a regressive growth. So our first point is fancy talk as a, smooth, as a cover for lust. Now, there are two forms that this usually takes. The first is the testing of followers' willingness to obey as a way to groom them for uncleanness. If you followed the shenanigans of the TV preachers for any amount of time, you will have seen them ask people to do some pretty bizarre things. One time I watched a preacher and his wife talk a huge diamond ring off a woman's finger. Uh, a couple weeks ago I read of an African preacher who as crazy as this sounds, squats over people's faces and breaks wind, claiming that he's exuding the Holy Spirit. Now, for one, if that's not blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, I don't know what is. But secondly, as crazy as that sounds, it's just the type of tool that false teachers use. They require their followers to do outrageous things. And the followers will either stop following, or if they do them, 
The public humiliation serves as a hook to keep them in subjection. I told you a couple weeks ago I couldn't recite in polite company the kinds of things I witnessed from these types of circles. When people get pummeled into submission by a charismatic leader that wows everyone with bombastic rhetoric and exaggerated outrageous claims of personal greatness, they can be led to do anything. It worked for Jimmy Swaggart, it worked for Charles Manson. The second way is by self-centered preaching or man-centered preaching. And by that I mean preaching that turns our focus from our natural native sinfulness and need of Christ and turns it into a congratulatory look at self. A famous preacher of the 19th century described his preaching this way. He said, I read a text of scripture and then make a beeline for the cross. Sadly, what passes for preaching in these dregs of time in which we live is the exact opposite. The text of scripture is read and then the sermon makes a beeline for the pew. We don't come to Christ because he can make our dreams come true. We don't serve God because he can make us happy or help us find personal fulfillment. That's the stuff of pop psychology. It's just sinful man's attempt to find meaning in life apart from God, the source of meaning. And so turning Jesus into a way to, you know, have a better marriage, get a promotion, get that, you know, be successful at work, to find contentment or some other thing, is really nothing more than using Christ as a tool to serve oneself. And we talked last Sunday about this self-pleasuring tendency of the false teachers, and it's on full, full display in man-centered preaching. You see, your conscience will feel good because we're talking about Jesus. But we're not talking about him as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're talking about him as the cosmic bellhop who's tripping over himself to make us happy and keep us happy. Now there's a very probing and searching truth to be seen in our text. And that is that there may be a remarkable change, outward change in a person from idolatrous and profane behavior to a profession of truth even with a life that appears consistent with this profession without the least shred of saving grace. A person's outward carriage may change while the love of secret lusts has not given way to the love of Christ. Sometimes the power of good examples, sometimes the prevailing values of the community may induce a person to modify their language or modify their behavior. But look at what our text says. There are people who have attained some standing in the church and for all that are still given over to the lusts of the flesh. There are people who had once actually escaped the evil practices of those outside the church and are yet enticed into living in error. Now this appears to be quite the dilemma, doesn't it? How can someone escape from the sinful, profane, and idolatrous philosophy of the world only to be enticed back into it, all the while maintaining a, making a profession of faith? And the answer is in verse 19. And that is the bogus appeal to Christian liberty. And that is our second point, the abusing of Christian liberty. Now, Christian liberty is a glorious truth. It is true liberty indeed. Christian liberty 
was virtually lost or at least very, very obscured during the Middle Ages. Essentially what happened was a slow creep of new rules and laws imposed upon Christians. And it happened so incrementally that few people would have noticed the changes at the time. But over the passage of centuries, by way of church councils and papal decrees, more and more rules were invented and imposed upon Christian Europe. And one of the glorious accomplishments of the Reformation was the eradication of all of these man-made rules. In the language of our reformers, men's consciences were being bound where God had not bound them. If you know anything about the Middle Ages, you know that there were all kinds of rules about fasting on certain days, uh, giving alms on certain days, mandatory pilgrimages, forced celibacy, uh, abstaining from certain foods, none of which are commanded in Scripture. You see, if I say to you, thou shalt not do X, Y, Z, which is not forbidden in Scripture, I'm doing two things. A, I'm going beyond the authority of God and in imposing rules that He hasn't imposed, thus calling evil what He calls good. And B, I'm binding your conscience. Now, what does binding someone's conscience mean? It means evoking in them a sense of guilt over having done something they believe is wrong. But if what they've done is not wrong, it's not against the law of God, then there's no reason for them to feel guilt. In fact, it's wrong that they should. Nowhere in Scripture will you find, Thou shalt not eat a hamburger on Arbor Day. Now, if I tell you that eating hamburgers on Arbor Day is a sin and you believe me, then I bound your conscience because you're going to feel guilty if you eat a hamburger on Arbor Day. And that guilty feeling, that's the feeling you're supposed to have when your conscience tells you that you've sinned. And so, by subjecting you to my Arbor Day rule, I've usurped the place of God and have become Lord over your conscience. But none of what we've just said should be construed as if to say that a person's conscience should never be bound. No, my friends, our consciences are to be bound by the law of God. As Luther famously said at Worms, my conscience is captive to the word of God. But you see, binding someone's conscience is the exact opposite of what the false teachers are doing. They're loosing men's consciences. The great sin of these false teachers was pitting Christian liberty against the law of God. Now, our Lutheran friends frequently talk about the law and gospel distinction. It's not unique to the Lutherans, though. All of the, our reformers talked about it. We just haven't made it quite the buzzword they have. But I think if we put our views side by side, we'd see that they're not any different. In application, it works like this. The law of God is proclaimed, causing the sinner to lose all hope of salvation in himself and in his own works. And that desperation drives him to Christ, who has fulfilled God's law on his behalf. You see, the law says, do this and live. The gospel says, live because Christ has done this. And that concept is woven throughout our beloved Heidelberg Catechism. Question 60, for instance, says that God imputes to me Christ's righteousness because, as if I had fully accomplished all of the obedience that Christ has accomplished for me. That's the words. And that's not a one-off statement in the Catechism either. It's in the warp and woof of the Catechism. But there is an artificial appeal 
or an artificial application of this distinction that says, well, salvation is by grace and not by works, so I should not be required to obey God's law because I might mistakenly try to earn my salvation. And therefore, when a preacher brings the law of God to bear on me, I'll object that he's trying to bind my conscience. And therefore, all calls to sanctification are glibly swept aside as if they were attempts to bind my conscience or push me to earn my salvation. Pitting Christian liberty against the law of God is an act of unbelief. It's the exact sin rebuked in this passage. And the purveyors of this system are said to be eternal reprobates like brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. So these are very serious words, beloved. Now I, for one, have never understood why people find the doctrine of sanctification so confusing. I've never understood how people can say that we can't earn our salvation by works and Christians are to obey the law of God are contradictory. Now I almost said I don't understand why people say it, but I understand why people say it. The reason why people say it is because they were of old ordained to this condemnation. They're turning the grace of God, as Jude says, into a license to sin. And that proves that they are not, were not, now or ever, true Christians because recipients of God's grace don't sit around calculating how much they can trample on the grace of God. You know, people accuse Paul of teaching this. He says that he was accused of saying, hey, let's sin because God's grace is so abundant. And this is why I love our catechism so much because it steers us clear of many of the rocks upon which many others have made shipwreck of the faith. It teaches us that our obedience to God's law is the natural fruit of the grace of God in our hearts and that it's simply an expression of our gratitude. And the growing desire to live according to God's law is a natural fruit of grace in the heart. Question 114 of the Catechism which comes after a long exposition of the Ten Commandments, asks, but can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? Answer, no, but even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of that obedience. Yet so, that with a sincere resolution, they begin to live, not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. And question 64 calls our obedience fruits of thankfulness. We don't obey God's law on an attempt, out of an attempt to get something from Him. We obey because we've already received something from Him. I don't expect my children to obey me so that they can become my children. I expect them to obey me because they already are my children. We don't live with a sincere desire according to all the commandments of God in order to be converted unto God, but because we already are converted unto God. Now, I'm sure we all chafe at the way that our Constitution frequently gets interpreted. Courts are in the habit of... I'm smiling because Caleb's up there looking at me. <laughs> our courts are in the habit of calling it a living document. And when they say that, they mean that the meaning is not fixed. So they interpret the wording to suit the values and views of society at the present, whenever that present happens to be. That makes the meaning fluid. 
what society likes today, of course, they may abhor 50 years from now. On the principle of a living constitution, the rule of law is like a lump of Play-Doh that can be made to say or defend anything. Now, of course, we all instinctively know that this is intentional deceit because words mean what the speaker or writer intends them to mean. And so the correct view is that which rests on what is called authorial intent, that is, the author. What did the author intend to say at the time? Now, as I said, we all chafe at this sort of political flim-flam because we recognize that it's using the Constitution merely as a prop to defend something that the Founding Fathers would have sent you to the gallows or the firing squad over. The appeal to the Constitution, it's pretentious, it's intended to trick the simple-minded into thinking that there is legal support for what they want and to shut the opposition up. Now, this sort of maneuvering angers us and it should. But this is the exact same method commonly used in Reformed circles to defend sinful behavior. The Reformed confessions get interpreted in a postmodern way, a way that argues and thinks according to the cultural and societal views of the day rather than according to the intent of the authors. And that's just the defense of worldliness under the cover of the confessions. It's essentially saying, I want to do something, and I know that a fair and honest appeal to the doctrines of the Christian faith would never in a million years allow me this. But I'm going to do it anyway, and if I have to, I'll strap Scripture and the confessions on the rack and torture them into supporting me. And don't you dare tell me that God's Word opposes me, because that's binding my conscience, and you have no right to do so. Now, I know this is a dumb example, and... It was so striking to me, mainly because it was so dumb that that's why I, I've never forgotten it. <coughs> Excuse me. I attended a Christian concert <coughs> a long time ago, and uh, a musician in one of the bands had a tattoo, great big three-inch letters across his chest that said, Property of Jesus Christ. Now, I know he thinks he was making a bold statement of his faith. The statement he was making, though, was my body, my choice, because I can assure you Jesus didn't stamp that on him. Another ridiculous example comes to mind. Uh, I was a witness a couple years ago to a discussion where uh, a professing Christian was blubbering over some cable TV program. They don't call them programs for nothing, by the way. Uh, this program that was loaded from one end to the other with scenes of blasphemy, idolatry, murder, nudity, rape, incest, sodomy, adultery, torture, you name it. And someone called this fellow out on the basis of Philippians 4.8 that this sort of material wasn't fit for swine, let alone for a Christian. And you'd have thought someone had said you were to crawl to China on broken glass to be saved. I was absolutely dumbfounded. Dozens of people ganged up and rained hell on this poor, unsuspecting dupe who thought that the Bible's prohibitions of feasting on nudity, adultery, blasphemy, and murder were, were, couldn't possibly be applied to art. And what was the defense used of such blatant wickedness? Yeah, you guessed it, Christian liberty. 
Now, in reality, there are a lot of Christians who, who just live according to the dictates of their own hearts. As the book of Judges says, they do what is right in their own eyes. And it never even occurs to them that every aspect of a Christian's life is to be governed by the Word of God. And I hate to break it to you, but you don't get to circumvent the law of God by a phony baloney appeal to Christian liberty. Either God's law binds your conscience or you're on a greased slide to hell. That's not works righteousness, my friends. That's not trying to earn salvation. That's just a recognition of fact. Children of God desire to know and obey the law of God. That doesn't mean they're perfect. Even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience. But living under the royal law of Christ is the natural fruit of thankfulness. If you gave me $100 and I said, thanks, and then I broke into your house and stole more money, would there be any reason to believe my gratitude was sincere? Of course not. Now, is not breaking into your house and stealing money a good work that obligates you to give me money? No, of course not. I don't see that it's that confusing. And that brings us to our third point, that their end is worse than the beginning. Now, in setting up our final point, we're going to retrace a bit of what we've already said. By using Christian liberty as a cloak for sin, these false teachers and their disciples deny the Bible's doctrine of sanctification. And they avoid sanctification by appealing against legalism. In other words, when they hear us preach the law of God, they object that we're preaching salvation by works, and they, so they construe any effort at obedience as an attempt to earn salvation. Now, we dealt with this a couple weeks ago, didn't we? When we noted that in 1 Peter, we're taught that election is unto holiness. So if someone makes God's law or God's grace a license for sin, that's like saying that predestination to holiness is a license for sin. And that's just ridiculous. <clears throat> a few minutes ago, we asked how someone could escape from the sinful life of the world only to be lured back into it, all the while self-deceived into believing that he has incredible profession of faith. And we answered that question by saying that the twisted appeal to Christian liberty was the way that it happens. Now, let's look at the illustrations our text uses to describe this. The first example is that of a dog that returns to eat its own vomit. And the second is of a pig that gets back into the mud after being cleaned up. And Peter's point is not that it's wrong for pigs or dogs to behave this way. His point is that's exactly what dogs and pigs do because they're brute beasts. A human should have better sense than this, though. Yet this is exactly what a person does when he returns to his former sins. And it doesn't matter why he returns to those former sins that he's escaped. It doesn't make a difference whether this person uses Christian liberty as an excuse to practice what God's law forbids, nor does it matter if the person just up one day just up and decides that he's not interested in the Christian life anymore. In both cases, Peter's argument is that the underlying reason for this return to sin is that their nature was never changed in the first place. It's the very nature of a pig to wallow in mud. That's what they do. You can soap and shampoo the pig up all you want. You can spray it with Chanel Number no. 5, put a gold ring in its nose, and dress it in an Armani suit. It's going to go back into the mud. 
and it's not stubbornness in the pig to wallow in the mud. That's its nature. When you cleaned the pig up, you didn't convert it into a, a, a prissy cat that's always cleaning itself. Its nature was never changed. All you did was affect an external change. And that's why I take this text to be such a serious warning. The point of the passage is that the person who gets slickered by some smooth-talking preacher into engaging in sin under the cover of Christian liberty, that person has never experienced a work of grace in their heart. They may have convincingly behaved like a sheep for a while, but they were never converted. They were a pig or a dog all along. Now it's important to see where Peter is going with this. Chapter 1 is all about how the, in the scriptures, God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Chapter 3 is going to discuss Christ's second coming and how we are to be prepared for it. And throughout chapter 3, being prepared for Christ's return is described in terms of godliness and personal holiness. And at the end of chapter 3, we get an explanation for this rather long digression about false teachers and how that false teaching always leads to unchristian behavior. Peter says that our desire should be to, to be found in Christ without spot and blameless. That's clearly reminding us of the subject of chapter 1, isn't it? And then Peter says that there are untaught and unstable people who will twist all the scriptures to their own destruction, which is clearly looking back to the subject of chapter 2. And again, that's why I said this is such a grave warning. Last week, our gospel reading was from Matthew 7, where Jesus warns, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. Now I fear that Many have come to look right through that warning as if it were describing something that's technically possible, but not very likely. Whereas Jesus describes it as actual fact. On Judgment Day, many will say, Lord, Lord. The masks will be pulled off on Judgment Day. And that means that the masks are real, and therefore it's the height of folly to imagine that there aren't really people who fit this bill. It's not what Jesus says. And in fact, his words address the exact issue of our text this morning. False teachers and their followers who have lived lives of lawlessness. And Jesus judges them to eternal condemnation because they had power and influence. And because of their deceitful ways, the way of truth was blasphemed. The abuse of Christian liberty is behaving even if you never say it, as if you think that since salvation is a gift of God and therefore can never be lost, that this gives you license to live as if you were trying to lose it. In Romans 6, Paul asks, If you've died to sin, how can you still live in it? Continuing to live in sin once you've died to it is like a prisoner not going home after he's been pardoned. Now, not leaving his cell wouldn't mean that he's not free. It means that he never wanted freedom in the first place. Now, this wouldn't happen in real life, of course. Its exact opposite, however, is the actual state 
of every unregenerate person. Our natural enmity toward God makes us deceive ourselves into thinking we're free when in fact we're in bondage. It's a billion times easier to make yourself think that you're free when you're not than to convince yourself that you're bound when you're actually free because there's nothing to motivate that delusion. But the Christian who uses grace as a license to sin is no Christian at all. Scripture boldly asserts that those who willfully persist in sin were never elect in the first place. It's like purposely spraining your ankle so that you can test the ankle brace to see if it works as good as the TV commercial says. That's not a mark of sanity, and using grace as a cover for sin is not a mark of conversion. And that's the warning of our passage. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and it is a frightful thing for a person to twist God's good gift into a noose to hang himself with. Let us pray.